Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, this world is filled with humans who are uncovered. Like our brother Boaz, help us to see the entire world as kin and the different as family. In Christ's name I pray, amen. And please be seated. This morning we are continuing in our summer sermon series titled The Five Scrolls, traditionally known as the Megaloth. As I shared last week, it was tradition for the five scrolls to be read during Israel's annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem to attend four feasts and one fast. At these feasts and fasts, the Jewish people gathered from all the villages of Palestine to remember who they were, to find motivation for continuing their lives of faith, and to orient their lives in God, who is love which is a lot like the function of church and our hope for this series. Uh, This summer, we hope to have our lives in this community shaped by the five scrolls and their associated feasts and fast to more deeply remember who we are, to find motivation for continuing in our lives of faith and to orient our lives in God, who is divine love. So far, we've covered Song of Songs, which is about intimacy in the midst, the context of sexuality, and it was read during the Feast of Passover. This morning, we'll consider Ruth, which is about identity, identity as a diverse person who belongs in God's family. This book was read during the Feast of Pentecost. So we're going to start with the Feast of Pentecost, and then we'll get to the book of Ruth. For most Christians, we hear the word Pentecost, and we think about the story that we heard read this morning from Acts chapter 2. The story of Pentecost tells us that the Holy Spirit descended from heaven, descended upon Jesus' disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit. They run out into the roads. They begin to speak in different languages. Peter preaches his first sermon, and the church, filled with diversity, the church filled with diversity is birthed. That's Pentecost in the Christian story. The word Pentecost is a Greek word that literally means 50 days. Thus, in the church, we celebrate Pentecost on the 50th day after Easter. Pentecost, it's a uniquely Christian day. And it's also a uniquely Jewish day. In the book of Exodus, chapters 20 to 40, Israel receives the law from God in its entirety. And in part of that law, Exodus chapter 23, verse 16, we read these words. You shall observe the festival of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. With these words, God declares that when Israel begins to harvest, that there is to be an official festival of harvest, also called the festival of first fruits. This festival had two primary purposes. 
First, it was to celebrate the harvest, this glorious harvest that had just come in. And second, it was to present the first fruits of the harvest to God as a way to acknowledge divine provision. So from there, we move to the book of Numbers, which follows up on this festival of harvest, this festival of fruits, in Numbers chapter 28 with these words. On the day of the first fruits, when you offer a grain offering, a new grain to the Lord, at your festival of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not work at your occupations. You shall offer a burnt offering, a pleasing odor to the Lord. And so in this Numbers reading, we hear yet another name for this festival, which is the Festival of Weeks. The book of Leviticus explains this in chapter 23. From the day after the Sabbath, and from that day on which you bring the sheaf of the elevation offering, you shall count off seven weeks, they shall be complete. You shall count until the seventh Sabbath, 50 days, there it is, 50 days, then you shall present an offering of new grain to the Lord. Festival of harvest, festival of first fruits, feast of weeks, they all speak to an agricultural festivity that required the Israelites to take a day off and to present the first fruits of their harvest to God. And lastly, the book of Deuteronomy takes this agricultural festivity, which would occur throughout the land of Israel, and it localizes it in one central place. From Deuteronomy chapter 16, you shall count seven weeks, begin to count from the time the sickle is first put to the grain. Then you shall keep the festival of weeks for the Lord, contributing a free will offering in proportion with the blessing that you received. Rejoice before God, you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite residents in your towns, as well as the strangers, the orphans, and the widows who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. Now, of course, the place that God chooses for the dwelling is Jerusalem. And so, once a year on the 50th day, Pentecost, on Pentecost, 50 days after the sickle is put to the grain, Israel was required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of harvest, the feast of weeks, the festival of first fruits, Pentecost. And here's where it all begins to get really, really interesting. History and Judaism tell us that after the Babylonian exile, this festival became associated with the making of the Sinai Covenant. I know there's a lot of information. I'm about to just bring it together. The Sinai Covenant is in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. It's when Moses meets with God on the mountain, receives God's word in the form of tablets, shares these words with Israel, and Israel enters into a familial a covenantal relationship with God. So trying to hold all of these ideas together, it's truly incredible. A feast that for hundreds of years celebrated harvest, right? The gathering of produce becomes post-Babylonian exile connected to the familial covenantal relationship between God and Israel. Pentecost. 50 days after the sickle is put to the grain, Israel made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate agrarian produce and familial produce. Food and covenant, both the result of God, both belonging to God. And in the midst of this festival, in the midst of all of the readings, in the midst of all of the singing, in the midst of all of the sacrifices and prayers, well, it's right here, here in the midst of the readings and singing and sacrifices and prayers that the book of Ruth was traditionally read 
at Pentecost. Ruth, a short story about a woman, a woman widowed, a woman marginalized, a woman migrant, a woman alien, a woman named Ruth. And the story begins, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. I just love the beginning of a good story, don't you? That's just one sentence, and the drama has already begun. There is a famine in the land. Now, remember, this is the land that is supposed to flow with milk and honey, but there's a famine in the land. And to make matters worse, there is a man who is from Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew literally means house or place of bread. That's a rough place to have a famine. It's like going to a bakery and there's no baked goods. A man from the land flowing with milk and honey, living in a town called Bread, experiences famine. No milk, no honey, no bread. It's a famine. And so what do they do? Well, this man and his wife and their two sons travel to Moab. Now, Moab is quite possibly Israel's greatest enemy. For Israelites, Moabites are personified anathema. They are the arch enemy number one of Israel. And so with this context in mind, the husband Elimelech and his wife Naomi have two sons, Melon and Kilion. Uh, They are Ephrathites from the town of Bred, part of the tribe of Judah. And they pack it up and they move to take up residence in Moab. Now, to be clear, they aren't visiting Moab. They're not just on an extended 4th of July weekend, right? Spending some days in Moab. Moab becomes their home. Until in Moab, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, suddenly dies and she becomes a widow. Now, at this point in the story, everything's still okay. As tragic and sad as that is, Naomi has a growing family. Her sons take Moabite wives. One marries a Moabitess named Orpah. The other marries a Moabitess named Ruth. But after about a decade, close to 10 years, there are no grandchildren that have been born. Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, then suddenly die. So imagine that. Naomi, a Jewish widow living in arch-nemesis number one territory, Moab, without sons, without grandchildren, which in that time would have been her primary source of security. Naomi decides to return to Israel. Packed up and heading home, Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-law and says, go back to your mother's homes. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with me. The Lord grant you security, each of you, as you find a husband. They kissed, they wept, but the daughters-in-law refused. No, we are going to go with you. We're gonna go with you, we love you. And Naomi says, really? I don't think that's a very good idea. Like there, there are no sons in my, in my tummy that I can give birth to or who are going to grow up and able to become your husbands, able to give you children, which could become my grandchildren. Like there's just no way that's going to happen. Go home. Besides, this isn't your problem, says Naomi. It's mine. The Lord has turned against me, not you. That's how she feels. At this, they all cried. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and left, but Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She clung to her and declared commitment worthy of wedding vows. 
which many of us have heard at weddings. Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, even if death parts me from you. Seeing that she's not going to be able to change Ruth's mind, she gives in. Can you see them? Like just, just for a moment, try and see them. I mean, maybe it's like the caravans that we see on television of, of migrants trying to make their way to a better life. Two women traveling side by side, carrying what they can, walking toward the great and scary unknown. And for one widow, it's a homecoming. And for another widow, it's a departure from home. And walking into Bethlehem, the house of bread, the women of the town see Naomi, recognize her, and they go wild. Naomi, hello, how are you? And Naomi replies, my name isn't Naomi, it's Mara. Mara is Hebrew for bitter. I'm bitter, says Naomi, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, I've returned home completely desolate. Sad, sad, terribly sad, and it seems as though the universe, capital U, universe, is against Naomi. In fact, at this point in the story, everything has been against Naomi, and her situation feels utterly hopeless. And of course, this is where any good story begins to get good, right? In the lowest of lows, where it appears as though there is no hope, where all is nothing but despair, And it's in the midst of this despair, it just so happens that in Bethlehem, the house of bread, lives a kinsman of Naomi. Now, a kinsman is someone who has the responsibility of caring for a relative's widowed family. Naomi's kinsman was named Boaz, a relative of Elimelech. And the best news about Boaz, the best news about Boaz is that he is fabulously wealthy. That's pretty good news. And even better, When Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread, it was the beginning of harvest. And so in about 50 days, there would be a festival celebrating God for the produce that they gathered. Now, with all of this in mind, Ruth asks her mother-in-law, Naomi, may I go to glean some grain in Boaz's field? Now, to be clear, this was dangerous work. Those who gleaned, meaning those who followed behind the reapers to gather what was just left behind, the, the little that was left behind, they were usually the poor, the weak, the most vulnerable and unprotected in society. It's why they did that, to get a little bit of food to just make it another day. But Ruth marched forward courageously. And after being spotted by Boaz, who finds out that Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law, his heart warms and he generously declares, let her glean not just in this field, but in all my fields. Everyone ensure that she will be safe. Give her all the water that she can drink. And at the end of the day, he loads her minimally filled bags full, stuffed full of grain. When Ruth returns home with her bags full of grain, she tells Naomi all that Boaz did. And Naomi sings, blessed be the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. It's the very first moment of hope in this woman's tragic life. The man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. And so throughout the harvest, Ruth gleaned in Boaz's field, safe, provided for. It's absolutely amazing. 
too amazing, actually. So amazing that Naomi didn't want to lose this kindness. The harvest was nearing its end, and so she concocted a plan directing Ruth to use her body, the beauty of her body, to gain Boaz's attention and care. Now, I want to pause here, because this is where we just keep fast-forwarding through the story, Uh, but this is a tragic moment in any story. It's horrifying. The things that impoverished, hungry, poor, marginalized people may try to do in order to survive in a society is horrifying. Ruth obeys. At midnight, Boaz wakes up. There is a woman mostly naked at his feet. He asks, who are you? She answers, it's me, Ruth. Spread your cloak over me. And Boaz is amazed and he responds with dignity. He tells her, There is one who is closer to kin than me. He has the right to redeem Elimelech's land and family first. That is to say, there's another relative who's closer to Elimelech than Boaz is, and and he has the first opportunity to do what is right and to take Ruth and Naomi into his care. Well, they go before the elders. This uh, kinsman redeemer goes passing by. They call him over. They say, hey, it's your responsibility. Are you willing to do this? He says, no. Boaz says, I'm going to do it. They swap sandals. That's that's maybe a safer way to shake hands than in COVID, right? We just swap shoes. Uh, That's like saying, yes, we agree to this. And Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. Boaz says to the elders, your witnesses that I've acquired Elimelech's land, that I take Ruth to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's inheritance so that his name may not be cut off. And the elders answer, we are witnesses. Ruth and Boaz marry, Ruth bears a son, and when the women in the town hear about it, probably the very same women who heard Naomi rename herself Mara, bitterness. When the women in the town hear about this, they say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has been born. Then Naomi takes the baby into her arms. We must be able to see this. Naomi takes the baby into her arms and it declares this image of this widowed grandma takes this baby into her arms. Mara, bitterness, hopelessness, despairing. Mara, no longer Mara. No longer alone, no longer in Moab, but home. Home in a land that once again flows with milk and honey in a town suddenly stuffed full of bread. The end. (sighs) That's a good story, right? That is a beautiful story. And it makes me wonder if this is simply a story of old. Like, like that's just a story that's been told. It's history, it's over. Or maybe we spiritualize it. God did a really miraculous thing back then. Wouldn't it be great if God did things like that today? And yet I think any compelling story uh, is supposed to rouse in us another question, which is, can this happen today? Maybe this should happen today? For certainly over and over, a story like this is God's story, and it could make for an incredibly beautiful human story if we were to just open our hearts to its goodness. I mean, for sure there's some Naomi in our world, right? Like the sad, the alone, the abandoned, the bitter, those who feel utterly cursed by God. And yet every once in a while, even some of this world's Naomi's experience great reversals. It happens every once in a while. 
making them capable of declaring, I am blessed, I actually have what I need, my stomach, my arms, my life is full. I wonder what the lives of Naomi's can teach us. Certainly, uh, how to honestly grieve. Naomi, it's so good to see you. How are you? My name is Mara. (laughs) No sugarcoating it. My life is broken. I have lost everything. Maybe we could learn something about honesty in the midst of our despair. And I suppose Naomi's can teach us that no loss, no despair is beyond the possibility of some kind of great reversal. To be clear, I don't intend to say that the Naomi's of this world can expect great reversals. That's just not how it goes. Only that the possibility of reversal can sometimes be a salve that strengthens those who suffer for just one more day. So perhaps those are some things that we can learn from Naomi. And let's not forget about Ruth, persistent, resilient, courageously caring. I wonder what she might have to teach us about holding space for those who grieve. Or I wonder might she have to teach us about standing with the widow. I wonder what she might have to teach us about walking beside the migrant. Perhaps something about the good of making wedding-like commitments to those with little or who are different. Rather than higher walls, more enforcement, stricter, more prohibitive policies that hinder flourishing for those who have little or who are perceived to be different by society. What about Boaz? Like, Like in his privilege, in his privilege, he has the power to take advantage, but he chooses not to. Instead, he uses his power and privilege to first treat Ruth as though she is family and secondly goes out of his way to make her family, to include her as family. And together, these two very different people create something marvelously new. And how about this? I mentioned earlier that Ruth was traditionally read at the beginning of Harvest, at Pentecost, What could a story about an impoverished person have to do with a season that celebrates bounty? Or let's turn that around. Uh, What could a season that celebrates bounty have to do with a story about an impoverished person? Well, perhaps it says something about the way in which the fabulously wealthy could use their privilege not to take advantage or to leverage more power, but to relieve the plight of those who suffer. Or perhaps it kind of speaks to, you know, economic values. That's to say, perhaps difficult economic moments are not opportunities to make more, but to pay special attention to those who suffer and struggle more. And what could a Moabitess, a foreigner, an alien, have to do with a festival that remembers a people's belonging in God? Or like, what could a holiday like the 4th of July that, that came out of immigrants have to say to a country that celebrates immigrants? Well, it must speak to issues such as immigration, marginalization, and societal disgust toward those who are different because clearly the lines and boundaries, economically speaking or racially speaking or nationally speaking or even religiously speaking, do not eclipse the transcendent value which is every person belongs in society. Every person. And here's another question. What could an interracial marriage, I mean, that's what it was, an interracial marriage. What could an interracial marriage in an age of horrifying tribalism have to do with a festival called Pentecost? 
well, I think it must gesture toward a world that is ever dismantling racist, sexist, and privileged norms that maintain power by othering. It must. In order to celebrate Pentecost, which is God gathering the different into one family, into one temple, which is humankind in all of its divine diversity. And lastly, what might the story of Ruth in which an impoverished person's world improves? An alien finds home and an interracial relationship is revolutionarily recognized as marriage have to do with our Christian Pentecost, which stands on the shoulders of Jewish Pentecost. Well, certainly something about doing practical good in Jesus' name, certainly. Certainly something about being bold in our support of those who are marginalized. And certainly something about elevating diverse belonging as we strive to dismantle racist, sexist, homogenous power in Jesus' name. Now that, that would be a good story. May it be so, and let us, let us pray. Oh God, this world is filled with humans who are uncovered. There are even parts and pieces of ourselves that feel so vulnerable, so exposed, that they can cause us to strive so hard to, to cover and to disintegrate. God, fill this world with humans who are uncovered, with friends and family like Boaz who help us to see the entire world as kin. Help us to see the different as part of your divine family. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.